Welcome, Duke fans, to episode 376 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. I am Jason Evans, and we are here, uh, uh, I, I guess, about 12 hours or so after Duke's victory over Georgia Tech, a game that can only be described as like a rock fight or something like that. It was, it was ugly. It was brutal. But we are here to talk about it. I am joined, as I always am, by Donald Wine and Sam Klein. Donald, how are you feeling today? Uh, pretty good. We still have some snow and ice on the ground. We apparently have more coming uh, this or later on this week. So uh, I'm kind of concerned only because I have tickets to the game on Saturday. And uh, if you've seen the news, I-95 did not have his best moment uh, the last couple of days. And so I'm pretty worried that that stretch of road separates me from uh, the Miami game on Saturday. Yeah, I-95 looked bad, <laughs> really bad. Sam Klein up in Boston. You don't have to worry about driving to Duke games. You're too far away, right? <laughs> uh, yes. Un until a few weeks from now when Duke comes to play Boston college, but hopefully things are okay by then. I'm feeling the, the general malaise from the game last night between the performance on the court and the, the general lack of attendance in the crowd, which I think was, was mostly COVID related and not uh, enthusiasm, but, but the combination of, of COVID and the students being on winter break led to uh, a, a pretty lackluster overall experience. It seems like at Cameron last night, I will say, I, I know we, I know we got to talk about it, but I, I think I want to address this because it doesn't really have to do with how we really recap games, the good or bad. Cause I don't think it was, it, it seemed bad, but it wasn't. I think the fact that last night, the two uh, broadcasters were remote meant that the, the transition and audio between the guys at home and the crowd from Cameron didn't really relate because there were times where a lot of people said, Hey, it seemed fairly loud in there, despite the number of empty seats, but you couldn't really feel that on TV because they had to transition between basically three different locations of audio. So, and I know that's difficult. I, I know people in production and they'll tell me all the time how difficult it is to pipe between two locations. They had to do three. So I'm going to give them at least a little bit of credit. Cameron, from what I heard last night did sound pretty good despite the empty seats. I think for us on TV, it was just hard to translate with that transition and audio. Well, hey, rather than talking about the crowd, we should talk about the action on the floor. It was great to get the Blue Devils back to playing basketball, if you can call that basketball. <laughs> it was it was not pretty. Uh, it was, uh, but it was a workmanlike effort as they beat Georgia Tech sixty nine to fifty seven. Gentlemen, as we always do, let's begin with our headlines. Sam, I'll come to you first. What's your headline from this? Ugly, ugly basketball game. Duke technically back in action and beats Georgia Tech. That works. Donald, give me I your like headline. Duke shakes COVID rust to sting Yellow Jackets. Uh, and here's what I've got. When you can't shoot, get physical. Duke pounds Georgia Tech into submission. You can tell how I think the game went. Um, neither team uh, were able to buy a basket from the field for the most part. Uh, part of that being good defense, uh, part of that being the fact that they both just seemed really out of sorts on offense. Um, and uh, the way Duke chose to counteract that was they took the ball to the basket again and again and again, and they got to the free throw line and they got layups and stuff like that. And that's how the Blue Devils uh, came away with a 12-point victory. Um, we will start with the good. And despite the game being ugly, um, I, I actually thought there was a lot of good. And Donald, I'll come to you first. What's your, what's your major thing you want to point out in the good section? Uh, before I know we have a little bit of good to discuss, but I want to start with an almost good because something okay. almost happened 
last night. And uh, I think we learned after the game that Josh Pashner, the, the head coach for Georgia Tech, had a plan to have Bobby Crimmins sit on the Yellow Jacket bench to kind of pay tribute to the battles that he had with Coach K during his time at Georgia Tech. Unfortunately, it did not work out. I believe Bobby Crimmins had a hernia, uh, and, and so he was not able to make the trip. But I thought that probably, I mean, what we watched last night, that would have been the coolest moment if that were able to transpire. So uh, it sounds like Coach K found out about it last night. Uh, he has sources at Georgia Tech. Uh, Pastor was trying to keep it a secret to kind of surprise him, uh, but he already knew. I think that would have been a really cool moment. So uh, I hate that. Uh, I hope, first of all, I hope Bobby Crimmins is doing okay. Uh, and I hope that he is feeling better. But I, I think uh, that would have been a nice, cool moment in, in a season where people are kind of not trying to talk about Coach K's last season while also recognizing that it is his final season. That would have been a nice, cool touch for some people, uh, especially Coach K. Yeah, I was going to save this and discuss it at the very end of after we did the good and the bad because it didn't fall into either either pile. But Donald brought it up early, so we'll, we'll do it now. Um, I, I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm the elder statesman of the podcast I remember vividly there were three young guns in the ACC in the 1980s when I you know, was first going to Duke. It was Jim Valvano, it was Mike Krzyzewski, and it was Bobby Kremens. And those three guys lifted their programs to, to really special places, um, especially Coach K and Bobby Kremens. Um, that Georgia Tech program under Bobby Kremens was, was every bit a top 10 national power uh, virtually every year, um, you know, throughout much of the 80s and, and then into the 90s. And it really would have been great if they'd been able to, to get him to come back. Uh, I think this is sort of the first of, uh, of what may be a wave of uh, nostalgic and, you know, remembrances for Coach K and stuff like that that we're going to get over coming weeks and months. By the way, Duke, Duke hasn't played an ACC road game yet for, for a for, uh, you know, for any, any of these schools to honor Coach K on the road. And, and our game coming up this weekend at Miami is also not a road game. It's just sort of the, the vagaries of the schedule and COVID has interrupted the fact that uh, Duke's first three games are, and actually it'll be, our, I guess, our first four. No, our first three ACC games will all be um, home games. Uh, but uh, anyway, like I said, let's, let's get to that actual game. Um, Donald, I think you, you used up your chance to lead off. <laughs> so, I, I use the good one, so I'm I'm fine yeah, with it. That's fine. So Sam, I'll go to you. Let's actually talk about the game, the contest. What happened that was good? I liked Duke's ability to make adjustments in this game. Um, clearly, a lot was not working, especially on offense. On defense, um, I, there's a part of me that almost wants to skip over talking about how good Duke was on defense because we know that Georgia Tech didn't come in with with much offensive firepower. And as we said in the preview, we we don't expect Georgia Tech to score a lot of points. They're not a, a good shooting or scoring team, so it doesn't surprise me there. But the fact that Duke was able to make adjustments on offense to, as you were saying, Jason, attack, 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 even if the ball wasn't going in the hoop, um, the fact that Duke was able to get to the line so much was um, was most of the difference in this game. Duke and Georgia Tech made about the same number of field goals. Uh, Georgia Tech actually scored more points from, uh, you know, if you remove all the free throws, Georgia Tech won this game. But the fact that Duke was able to get to the line so much meant that they were able to overcome the physicality. They were able to overcome their own rust, not being able to make shots both from the floor and from the free throw line to uh, to be able to to weather this game and 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 keep Georgia Tech at arm's length the whole time. I think if these two teams had been playing 
you know, in, in the normal flow of their season, if Duke had been able to, to come into this game on just three days rest instead of 12, then you would have seen more of the blowout that I think Ken Pomeroy expected. But uh, at, at this point, well, and, 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 we Sam, said in the pre- and Sam, really quick, not just 12 days rest, but they didn't practice. <laughs> yeah, right. 12 days rest and no practice. That was um, clear. We, we said on the preview that this team is likely to be rusty because of that lack of preparation. And I mean, I don't know that it could have been more clear in a win that Duke was not really prepared for this game. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm really glad you mentioned uh, the free throws because my biggest, my biggest good thing from this game was Duke's aggression. Um, the fact that Duke recognized that this was the way they had to score because they couldn't hit um, <laughs> they couldn't hit anything from, from the field. Um, Duke ended up taking 40 free throws to just 12 for Georgia tech 40. That's a big, big number of free throws. And I, I want to specifically shout out uh, a few guys. Uh, Paolo Bencaro was fouled nine times. Jeremy Roach was fouled seven times. AJ uh, Griffin was fouled six times. Those are the guys who were being really aggressive with the ball and taking it to the hole and getting to the free throw line as a result. And, and, by the way, part of all this was, I, I looked at the shot chart. Have you guys seen the shot chart? Duke only took two shots outside of the lane other than three-pointers. You know, two mid-range shots. That is, that is great shot discipline. Everything we took was in the lane or a three-pointer. We only had two shots outside the lane. Both of them were taken by Paulo. One of them was, he, he made like a 14-foot jumper. It was a really nice shot. Um, and then he also took uh, one from the corner from the baseline, about a seven or eight footer that he missed. Duke didn't hit a lot of their shots. They got their shots blocked way too much. And, and we'll talk about that more when we get into the bad. But Duke was, was doing the right thing with the ball on a day when they couldn't otherwise score. And then the other thing I wanted to mention very quickly was our, our big men, um, Mark Williams, who I'm going to talk about a lot <laughs> in the good and the bad. But from a good standpoint, he was really imposing in the post. Um, he blocked three shots in the first half, and then uh, he affected probably a half a dozen more. Georgia Tech was absolutely afraid to take the ball in the lane against him, um, especially in the second half after he blocked those shots in the first half. And he, he grabbed a ton of rebounds, double-digit rebounds. He's a guy who has struggled at rebounding, um, I think, for a guy his size much of this year. And, and it really felt like, you know, the, the coaching staff had said to him, you need to get better at this. And, and he turned in an outstanding effort on the boards. Um, Paulo Bancaro was also also had a double, double, double. Uh, Paulo took advantage of the matchups that he had. He was almost always guarded by a guy who was significantly smaller than him. And Paulo was the guy who was able to get inside and score um, on the inside in a day when Duke could not score at all, pretty much from the outside. So I thought the big men, the aggression, the free throws, those were the real keys, at least offensively, to Duke winning this game. We had talked in previous games about how Mark Williams was not able to impose his size against smaller teams. And that one of the, you know, if you want to look for, for one of the good keys for the rest of the season out of this game, the fact that Mark Williams was able to come in and be big, against Georgia Tech is a really good thing for Duke. You don't want it to, you know, when it comes to NCAA tournament time, if Duke is playing a team full of wings to have to sit Mark Williams because he can't really compete with guys who are 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, he needs to, to be imposing. And both of those guys led to Duke out-rebounding Georgia Tech 48 to 35. 48 rebounds is a lot of rebounds. Uh, so I, I'm really happy with that effort 
And, and like you said, Jason, I think uh, both good and bad, I think there was a lot of shots missed, but guys were being scrappy and they were going after rebounds. We got a lot of second chance points that way. But I want to talk about A.J. Griffin. Uh, and before I, I, I want to lead off A.J. Griffin with a stat that Duke men's basketball put out this morning about A.J. Griffin during the last five games. He has 60 points. He's 20 for 31 in free, uh, from the field, 8 for 16 from beyond the arc, 12 for 15 from the line, 21 rebounds, 5 blocks, 10 assists, and just one turnover. And I believe, and someone checked me on this, in those five games, he has led the team in plus minus every single game. I know we talk about that a lot. His, way, his ability to make an impact on the floor when he's in the game, even for limited minutes, even with how bad like the team was playing from a rust standpoint, he was able to make an impact every single time he came into the game. Did you see the plus minus from last night? Uh, this was, to me, was really, plus 17. really telling. Yeah, AJ was plus 17. Mark Williams was a zero. Mark Williams had, you know, his plus minus was, was zero. AJ tops on the team. That plus 17 was better than anyone else on the team. Mark Williams is zero was the worst on the team. And, and I think we're, you know, we're, we're, it's becoming abundantly clear that AJ Griffin is going to be on the floor at the end of competitive games. And it looks like that means that Mark Williams is not going to be on the floor at the end of competitive games, unless, you know, something changes the, the way things are appear right now. That's, that, that's sort of what Coach K is going with. That Mark Williams is going to get his time. He's going to get his, you know, 20, 22 minutes a game. But, um, you know, at the, at the very end, when, when Duke needs to, needs to make the plays, A.J. Griffin's going to be out there. And, and I have to tell you, that lineup that we, that we run with A.J. Griffin, um, where Paulo is our biggest guy, it's impossible to say it's not at least a little bit reminiscent of, the, of what the Golden State Warriors do. The, the, I'm not saying that this is the lineup of death, the Golden State was sort of famous for, but it boy, it sure feels close to it at this point. And it's not impossible to imagine that it becomes a lineup of death over the, the rest of the season. And really quick, I just want to mention, I, I, I wanted to praise A.J. Griffin for making big plays at winning time. Um, the cut he made to the basket on that tomahawk dunk, uh, you, you go back and watch. It was with about three minutes left. Wendell Moore drives the ball baseline. Um, the Georgia Tech defense goes to Wendell Moore, and Wendell makes a great, incredible pass. But the cut that AJ made to get open was really oh, was a smart, smart play. That's the that's a play by a guy who's the son of an NBA coach. Um, he recognized where he needed to go, and Wendell found him. That was a huge play. And then the very next time Duke has the ball, um, AJ Griffin drives the drives the baseline. The Tech defense comes to him, and he. He whipped the ball to Trevor Keels, almost uh, almost completely cross court, and Keels got a three pointer out of it. Um, AJ Griffin made two great plays in conjunction with his teammates, getting an assist and then making an assist. And those were the two plays that really stretched the lead out at the very very end and made it so that the game was no longer in doubt. I thought AJ was absolutely incredible in this game. I was going to turn the question back around on both of you and ask. Is A.J. Griffin going to end up in the starting lineup sooner than later for the Blue Devils? And if so, it sounds like, Jason, you, you think that, you know, maybe he's finishing games in place of Mark Williams. Do you think that he also has to become a starter? No, I, I, I don't. I, I'm, I'm very comfortable. He's so versatile. You know, there's, there's so many different ways that you can insert A.J. into this lineup. But look, it's a really, it's an incredibly versatile team, as we've seen. Um, I, I don't think A.J. has to start, and I think that, they're, they're in a good rhythm here. There's no reason to mess with what's working. AJ is going to get his time. He's going to get his minutes. And 
um, whether those minutes are at Mark Williamson's expense or, or perhaps someone else. Um, you know, there was some time that Mark Williams and AJ, AJ Griffin were on the floor together in that game. Not a lot, but there were some times. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any reason to mess with what's working. Donald, what do you think? I agree. And, and honestly, I think he, part of this is that he's embraced his role as that first guy off the bench. And, you know, sometimes you see that, right? I mean, in 2001, we saw Chris Duhan move into the starting lineup late in the season. I know that was due to a foot injury uh, by Carlos Boozer and just kind of a reshuffling of the deck by Coach K for that last stretch. But we've seen it from time to time where the where the sixth man becomes the fifth man. And but in this case, I think for right now, I think we're good with the starting line that we have. AJ making a difference off the bench doesn't necessarily mean that he needs to start to make that impact. He's shown that he can do that off the bench. Why mess up a good thing right now? You know, we've been talking a little bit about versatility. I made a note, and I just want to get this to you guys really quickly. Um, at the nine-minute mark of the second half, there was a great moment of versatility from this Duke team. Um, uh, Michael DeVoe of Georgia Tech drove the ball to the basket, and Mark Williams picked him up because Mark was in there uh, protecting the hoop, protecting the rim, as he does so well. Uh, Michael DeVoe recognized, I'm not going to get this shot up <laughs> over Mark Williams. <laughs> Doing so would be foolish. And so DeVoe took the ball all the way out of the lane and came back out to the three-point line. Now, Mark Williams was guarding him at that point, so Mark Williams went with him. And Mark and DeVoe attempted a three-pointer that Mark Williams contested and missed. Now, because Mark Williams was on the perimeter, it meant that Trevor Keels was now underneath the basket, and it was up to Trevor Keels to fight with the Georgia Tech rebounders to get the rebound. It showed the versatility of this team that our center went out and guarded the three-point line while a guy who plays guard, you know, probably plays point guard more than anybody else was the guy battling for the rebound. It was, I, I just noted, I was like, God, that's a really, it's a great moment for this team. All right. Do you guys have any other good stuff or should we move on to the bad? You mentioned Michael DeVoe. And in the preview, we talked about how DeVoe is, you know, the best scorer on this team um, in, in, in sort of normal games, Duke held him to just three for 10 from, from beyond the arc and Georgia tech in general was not able to score the ball. I said at the beginning of the good that it's not particularly notable because it's not like Georgia tech is this, is this awesome offensive team that Duke was holding down, but good to be able to get DeVoe a little bit out of his element. I know that he scored 21 points, but it took him 19 shots to get there. And that is, that is great work by the blue devils on defense. And 21 points with a plus minus of minus 12. So that means what he did on the offensive end was completely negated when he was in the game by Duke, uh, because a minus 12 means he was on the floor for some terrible stretches of basketball for George tech. I mean, yes. And for Duke, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but I think Duke did a great job of neutralizing him and making other people try to beat them. And like you said, Sam, they didn't have the offensive output for any of these guys to beat Duke alongside DeVoe. So I think that was really good pre preparation to, to play against DeVoe by Duke and really good execution. Yeah, and it was Wendell Moore, by the way, who, who played really great defense on Michael DeVoe for the first 20 minutes. DeVoe only had five points at the half. And to some extent, it's not that the game was over at halftime, but Georgia Tech was in a hole and they are not a team that's going to be able to come back very easily on you. Yes, Michael DeVoe got his 21, but he did a lot of it late. Um, I don't want I mean, look, he, he made the game competitive. You know, it was a six-point game in the final five minutes. That's competitive, but but Duke was never really all that threatened. And uh, Michael DeVoe, a lot of those points sort of came when the game was, you know, maybe you'd eased off the throttle a little bit because it didn't seem like it was going to be 
that huge a game. By the way, we are going to talk about Michael DeVoe and Coach K a little bit later. But first, guys, let's get to the bad because there was some bad in this game. There was a lot of rust. Donald, I'll come to you first. What, what do you want to talk about in the bad section? I mean, the rust, it, it looked like, I, I mean, look, guys, we all have had stretches. The three of us have had stretches in life where, I mean, I, I, I live four feet right now from a basketball that I have not touched in quite a while. And that's what it felt like last night. It felt like both teams really, but Duke, especially that rust was ever present. It was present at the free throw line. I I know we talked about how good it was that we got to the free throw line, but we went 26 for 40 from the line. So the, the rust was definitely there. Guys were short arming free throws, which means that they haven't just had a lot of repetitions with the basketball and just the sloppiness of the play. I think, I credit Duke for being scrappy and kind of trying to find a way to win, but there was definitely a lot of sloppiness out there. And it's clear that there was a lot of times where it felt like these guys didn't trust what got them there because they were just trying to get back into shape. And I, and I, I, I'm saying all that to say it's understandable that that's happening, but I do think that that was one of the biggest issues is that a lot of times these guys were playing so sloppy that, it got them out of their rhythm. It got them out of their momentum. And even if they were trying to build something, that momentum would be shattered by a turnover or by a, a short arm miss shot and just, you know, forgetting to get back on defense. Little things like that will kill you against a good ACC team. It just so happens that they were playing Georgia Tech last night and they were able to overcome it. Look, Coach K um, spoke about this in the post game. He said, Duke is not close to being the team that we were. <laughs> but he said we can and we will get back to where we had been. Um, uh, by the way, Coach K in the postgame pointed out that the key to our team is defense right now. Um, he said that, you know, they, they, were, they were tired. You know, we were out of shape. But he said, I kept on telling them, don't play tired on defense. If you need to rest, rest on offense. Don't play tired on defense. He, because he said – Against Ohio State, we got tired on defense, and that's what allowed Ohio State to come back and win that game, the only game that Duke has lost this year. Um, just really quick, I, I thought the, the rust to me was apparent in, in the, the close shots that Duke missed or didn't even end up taking. Um, Mark Williams seemed completely unable to hold on to the ball when we got it to him in the post. Uh, a friend of mine, Carl, Carl Heimel, said it seemed like someone gave Mark the be strong with the basketball DVD from Casey Sanders and chase Jeter as a Christmas gift. (laughs) And that, um, someone needs to go over to, to Mark's apartment and confiscate it, uh, before, (laughs) before Mark watches any more of that DVD. Uh, I thought that was uh, a really funny comment by, by Carl. I wanted to give him full credit for that. Um, but in addition to Mark Williams being unable to hang on to the ball in the post and, and unsure of what to do with it other than dunks. Like, you know, if you lob it up to the rim, Mark's going to dunk it. But other than that, Mark was lost. The other guy who I thought was very poor offensively and showed a lot of rust was Wendell Moore. Um, Duke took a lot of ill-advised shots in the paint. Wendell Moore, especially uh, Georgia tech blocked seven shots in this game and they are not a good shot blocking team. Wendell Moore got blocked three times. He was only two of 11. He had three turnovers. Sam, what, what was going on with Wendell Moore? Yeah, I think your point about Duke focusing on defense and and slagging a bit on offense is most exemplified by Wendell Moore, who played very aggressively on defense and on offense, just could not get anything going. As you said, had his shot block 
three times, uh, you know, committed three turnovers and, and only dished two assists yesterday. Wendell Moore has, has basically been Duke's point guard, has been the facilitator on the team so far this year. And this is the first game, I think, where we could say that he, he kind of felt short as, as the point guard. So um, that was the, that I thought was the, the sort of highlight bad spot for Duke last night. Paulo Bancaro was able, you know, we were talking about making adjustments on the offensive end. Paulo and, and to some extent, Mark Williams were able to make those adjustments and AJ Griffin was able to get to the line Wendell Moore wasn't really able to do that with the same uh, with the same ability. He was he was turning the ball over in ways that were uncharacteristic. And if he's going to be a first team All American and, and, and a first team All ACC type player this year, this is a game that is that that, that he needs to put behind him and uh, and you know move forward from. All right, Donald, you got any other bad? I'm I'm kind of tapped out at this point. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I check all of this up to a lot of rust and, and even the bad little things that I see, I'm not too overly concerned with because I do think, that, again, that's what happens when you don't pick up a basketball in just about two weeks. So I, I'm happy to say that the, the bad that was in this game are things that I think can be overcome, but just getting back into a rhythm. 2022, I, I, I was just texting my best friend about 2022 has not let anybody get into a rhythm yet. I know we're still early. It's only five days in. But that's where Duke will will start to become better is when they get the rhythm back. That begins with this game and now hopefully practices throughout the rest of the week leading into the Miami game. I wonder if this is if this is a bad or if this is just a return to normal. But last night was, I think, the first game for Duke this season where only six guys played 10 minutes. And it, it, it's it's the Duke. Uh, the, the Duke rotation is shortening the way that it often does. Uh, as you get farther on into the year, only the starters and AJ Griffin played more than 10 minutes. Joey Baker was seventh on the team in minutes and was on the floor for just seven minutes. Uh, Theo John barely played yesterday. And, and I think in the, in our, you know, rosy preview version of this team coming in, it was like Mark Williams and Theo John are going to split time at center and, and et cetera. And that does not appear to be what's happening here. Some of that I think is due to AJ Griffin's emergence where he's, he's basically demanding through his play that he has to get 20 or 25 minutes off the bench, but uh, it's not exactly the rotation that we expected to see. I mean, it's funny in our preview, we discussed how because of COVID and because of conditioning, all these guys are going to be doing lots of rotations and we're going to see like 10, 11 guys on the court. And we saw the opposite of that. We saw the starters. And there was and a lot of really playing the ball minutes. early in got- the game. Duke, Duke was mm-hmm. subbing guys in pretty frequently early in the game, uncharacteristically so. But then that calmed down and became just the the normal rotation by the time you got to the latter part of the first half when Duke went on their their big run to to create that separation. Yeah, uh, look, Jalen Blake's got in this game, um, and, and I didn't think he was going to play very much at, at all in in competitive ACC contests. Um, I, I don't think you can read too much into you know any of the minute breakdowns or anything like that because we don't know which guys have been exhibiting symptoms from covid we don't know which guys are you know having uh you know conditioning issues um it, it's going to take a little bit of time before we really figure out uh whether you know whether joey baker is going to struggle to get minutes and whether theo john is is basically not going to play um uh it, we, we will see in time gentlemen <laughs> All right, so, uh, and in fact, one of the places we're going to see is this weekend when Duke plays Miami. Donald is coming down to Durham to watch his Hurricanes play his Blue Devils. We will get a preview of Miami 
in just a moment. Okay, we are back, and it is time to look ahead to Duke's contest on Saturday evening against the Miami Hurricanes. Miami, somewhat surprisingly, you know, sort of sitting at the top of the ACC standings right now. How did that happen? Donald Wine is a fan of Miami, knows the school quite well. Donald, why don't you lead off? Tell us what we should look for. I know you got a lot to say about this Miami team. Yeah, you mentioned it. Coach Laranjega has these guys playing some basketball right now, uh, which is very good if you're a Miami fan. They are 11-3 and right now, 3-0 and in the ACC. They do, as we record on January 5th, they do host Syracuse tonight. So, Jason, you were talking about how weird it is for Duke to open up the season with three home games in the ACC. Well, they have three home games so far this year, and they will have a fourth before they finally hit the road uh, to come to Cameron this weekend. So, they have wins over Clemson, Wake Forest, North Texas, Penn State, and NC State so far in the top like 100 to 125 in Kempom. Uh, and their losses have been to pretty good teams, Alabama, UCF, and Dayton, all of which who are rated also in the top 100. So when you talk about Miami, you have to start with two guys that kind of form the backbone of the team, and that's Isaiah Wong and Cameron Mcgusty. Both of them, if you recall, last year they declared for the NBA draft but then decided last minute to withdraw from the, from the draft and return to Coral Gables. So Miami was definitely glad that that happened because they have been very good this year. And I want to kind of go through the lineup just a bit, and then I'll stop and let you guys kind of chime in. The idea behind Miami is this. We just talked about how Duke only had six guys that averaged over 10 minutes or played over 10 minutes last night. They rely heavily on their starters. Isaiah Wong, Cameron Mcgusty. Charlie Moore, Jordan Miller, who was a transfer from George Mason, and Sam Wardenberg, who has been out the last couple of games due to COVID, uh, but is expected to play tonight against Syracuse. So we should expect to see him in the starting lineup when they come to Cameron on Saturday. The thing about Wong is this. He likes to drive the lane. He likes to go to the rim. He will take threes. He's pretty good at shooting. He's not good at shooting threes, but he'll take a lot of them. There will be times where he kind of takes over as the point guard. And in those moments, he's not looking to pass. He's looking to find a lane to the basket. This is partially why Miami is not great at creating shots via assists. They only average like 13 assists per game, which is one of the bottom uh, half of college basketball right now. So Isaiah Wong, while he's a great player, he's going to try and take it to the hole himself. He's not looking to distribute to anybody. Cameron McGusty, if he is going to look for someone, it's going to be him because Cameron McGusty, while he also takes a lot of threes and is actually pretty good at making threes, is around a 40% three-point shooter. He likes to slash to the basket. He can finish with contact. He has great soft hands. So he is going to be a guy that's going to be the guy that kind of slashes in when Wong goes to the, to the floor or goes to the hole as a second option for him to finish. Now, the main distributor on the team is Charlie Moore. He's not going to take a lot of threes. When I tell you guys, when he takes threes, think Dame Lillard. Think logo, logo Dame. He shoots from the logo at Wasco Center. So he's not going to be a guy that's going to take him right beyond the arc. He's going to try and take 30 footers. He's decent at them, but he does that to stretch the defense out because, again, when the ball is in his hands, he is the main distributor, and he's going to be the guy who averages the most assists. Jordan Miller, like I mentioned, transferred from George Mason. 
He's going to be a guy. He can shoot the three. He can get rebounds. He can score a few points. He's not the main offensive guy, but he's a guy that can be there, especially on kickouts and drives and, and, and dribble drives and kicks for threes. And then Sam Wardenberg, he's a guy that's not really physical inside, but also can shoot the three. Shoots 42% from three when he does take shots. So, again, the three ball handlers, Wong, McGusty, and Moore, are going to be the guys that create the bulk of the offense. And they're going to rely heavily on those guys to create that offense and get a lot of shots. Now, quickly, I want to say that as a team, they are not good at rebounding. They're 341st in the country in rebounding. They average 31 rebounds a game. So that's where Duke is going to hammer them. They're also, as I mentioned, not great at moving the ball around. So they like to cause some turnovers and get out in transition and either shoot a three or you know go straight to the hole and try and make a quick basket. But if not, if they're in the half-court offense, they will try to shoot threes. They do take quite a few of them. They're not, I mean, they're a decent three-point shooting team. They shoot about 35%, but they're going to take a lot of threes because in the half-court offense, as I mentioned, the guards are going to be dominating the basketball. So the one battle that I think is important is the battle between the guards on the perimeter. We're going to see if Trevor Keels, Jeremy Roach, and Wendell Moore, along with A.J. Griffin, can keep the Miami guards in front of them. And also on offense, Duke's guards need to be very strong when they go to the hole. Miami likes to clog the lane. If you remember last year, we had a lot of times where DJ Stewart and Jeremy Roach and Wendell Moore would try to drive the lane. And those guys were waiting for them and trying to block the shot. And that's how they were able to get out in transition and get easy points and catch up and eventually beat Duke by two on the road. So they need to take care of the basketball. Duke has to make sure that they keep these guys in front of them. And honestly, if they're going to present threes, make the open threes, because if they can do that and take and frustrate the guards, the front court is where we have the biggest mismatches. Paulo Bancaro, nobody can match up with him. AJ Griffin is going to be a problem for him. Wendell Moore, if he plays like Wendell Moore that we've seen all year, nobody can match up with him either. And Mark Williams, they really don't have a lot of guys that can bang with him. Dan Gak is going to be the biggest guy that they throw in here, but he is not a guy that's a factor on defense. He likes to just take open dunks when the defense collapses on the guard. So again, biggest, biggest, biggest battle is going to be between the guards. It's going to be a nice one. Uh, but if Duke can win that battle, I think they have the the difference in all the other categories. And that's where we see Duke winning this basketball game. So really quick on the advanced stats and you got into a lot of it. So, I mean, there's not, there, there isn't a tremendous amount for me to add. I, I, I just want to, you know, sort of put a fine point on some of the, some of the things you were saying. This Miami team, is really great on offense and really bad on defense. Uh, Ken Pomeroy says they have the 26th best offensive efficiency in the country. We're talking about a top 25 offense here, but the 201st best defense, <laughs> that's, that's really not good. Um, and uh, overall, he says they're the 92nd best team in the country. But, uh, you know, based on their record, based on who they've beaten, based on the fact they don't have any bad loss, you know, they've got losses that aren't great. I guess the Dayton loss you know, Dayton's hovering right around number 100, but that's not a terrible loss. Um, this Miami team could really be on the bubble come tournament time, especially if they keep on finding ways to win these ACC games. They're, they're, you know, they've been really streaky, by the way. They, they've, they've been able to pull off uh, these ACC wins by, um, by, by coming back on teams late. They beat Clemson. They went on a 19-3 to run against Clemson in the final five minutes of that game. They were down, and they came back, and they won going away because they went on a 19 to three run. Um, and, and they played NC state the other day. 
They beat NC State by going on an 18-2 to two run in the final seven minutes of the game when State had the lead. So, uh, you know, we'd be thinking completely differently about this Miami club if they were 1-2 and two in the ACC instead of 3-0. and oh, and, and really, they've, they, they, they've reached that 3-0 and oh by, by coming back on teams late. So, by the way, if Duke has a lead late, don't, don't change the channel. <laughs> this is a Miami club that can definitely come back on you. Um, as Donald said, really solid ball handling team. Uh, you, you mentioned their guards are good. They have the 13th best turnover rate in the country. Uh, I'm going to repeat that. We're talking about almost one of the 10 best teams in the country in terms of not turning the ball over. They don't give up steals. They don't get their shots blocked. You know, they, they take smart shots and they, and they make them. Um, they, they hit their free throws. They hit their threes. Uh, just really outstanding offensive execution. But man, just it's like they don't even care on defense, Donald. I, I, it, it's, it's baffling to me that a team could be this good at um, offensive execution, this bad at defensive execution. They let their opponents take a lot of threes and hit them. Opponents hit better than 36% from three. Um, they, they don't get, you know, this is a team that takes care of the ball, but then they don't get many turnovers on the other end of the floor. They don't really stop teams from getting the shots they want. And like you said, they're an awful rebounding team. They, this, this is probably, you know, one of the worst rebounding teams that Duke will play all year. And uh, Duke's going to have to take advantage of, of, our, of our advantage on the inside because Miami is really good on the perimeter. Um, last thing I'll say is that Ken Pomeroy predicts that Duke will win this game 85 to 70. Uh, that's a lot of points. This will be a high-scoring game. Miami plays with decent pace, not super fast, but they play with at least a decent pace. And as we've said repeatedly, really good offensive team, not a good defensive team. Uh, I, I would expect Duke to get into the 80s and – you know, the only question is, is Miami going to be able to keep up with them? Sam, what are you expecting from this contest? I, as you're describing this, the, the story that's playing out in my mind is that this might be the perfect game for Duke to get back in shape on because the things that Miami is going to let Duke do are the sort of things that, that you want to see more of. I want to see Duke out-rebound teams. Not, you know, they, they did that against Georgia Tech, but I, wanna, I want them to make that a, a habit. Uh, and not just an occasional thing. Duke has the size and the ability to be one of the best rebounding teams in the ACC, and I would like uh, for that to continue. So this could be a good confidence booster for that. If Miami is also giving up three-pointers, great. Let's see Let's see Duke make a few three-pointers. Let's see A.J. Griffin and Trevor Keels and maybe even Paulo Bancaro make a few three-pointers against Miami and get the offense stretched out a little bit to create more room for that for that dribble drive that Duke hasn't quite, you know, as we saw against Georgia Tech, they're not quite there on on all of that uh, offensive execution being crisp. I know that the offensive efficiency for Duke is is better than its defensive efficiency, but watching the games, I cannot wrap my head around the Duke offense being, you know, more advanced than the Duke defense is. So I'm hoping that in this game, Duke is able to, again, keep keep Miami at a distance so that they prevent that late run and work on some of the things that are going to be key for this team to be good at come tournament time. You guys mentioned the difference between their offensive efficiency and their defensive efficiency. That is always present for Miami in the transition, especially getting back on defense after a made basket where it's literally inexcusable to give up a quick basket, but time and time again, you will see Miami make a basket and they kind of celebrate it. And in that, split second 
the other team has gone down to the other end of the floor and they make a quick basket. So they almost play out of control in the sense on, on defense that they just kind of say, hey, we'll just give them the shot because we'll get the ball back and we can score on offense and kind of make it a, a, a shootout of some sort. Like even these games, Jason, that you mentioned that they caught up, they ended up being shootouts. It wasn't like they were low scoring affairs. They were scoring 80, 90 points in some of these games. So they're going to want to do that. And for Duke, just when you make a basket, make sure you stop them, get them into their half court offense, because I think that is where they are the most out of control, if that makes sense. They don't like to run a, a structured offense because they want to get the ball to Isaiah Wong or Cameron Mcgusty and let them go to the hole. So if you can get it out of there, they'll frustrate them. And then we will be having transition points on the other end because they're not going to get back on defense. Another thing about this Miami team that is interesting and is similar to Georgia Tech is that they are experienced. We talked in the preview about how Georgia Tech is bringing basically all seniors to, you know, to, to the key parts of their rotation. Miami is, is not quite there. Wong is technically only a sophomore, but it's his third year in the program, and he's played real minutes for them every year that he's been there. Um, Moore and McGusty are, are also seniors um, and, and also have all that experience. Jordan Miller is a transfer, but um, he's he's a, you know, he's technically a junior, but is in his fourth season and fourth season of, of playing real minutes. So all these guys are the, you know, the most important pieces for Miami are experienced and it's good for Duke to keep getting reps against these, these experienced guys, because they won't be scared off by, by the environment. Duke was able to against Georgia tech. We didn't, we didn't end up talking so much about how Duke handled the the weirdness with with DeVoe and, and some of the other Georgia Tech guys, but uh, Duke was able to to overcome the lack of experience, and I'm glad that they're getting you know another round with a team like that this weekend. Oh my gosh, I can't believe we forgot to talk about the Michael DeVoe and Coach K incident. God, as soon as you're ready, Jason. Uh, yeah, I I blew it. I, we were supposed to talk about it earlier, and then we got into all. The, let's do it now before we go. Um, so uh, if folks didn't see it, you know. Uh, in the second half, as Georgia Tech was making a run, um, Duke was uh, uh, Coach K was getting ready to take a timeout, and as he took that timeout, Georgia Tech star Michael DeVoe turned to Coach K, pointed at him, and said something. Um, it is not known exactly what Michael DeVoe said. I, I have I have done a little bit of research, and people say uh, what I'm hearing on the Twitterverse is that Michael DeVoe pointed at Coach K and said, "Yeah, you better get a timeout," or something something like that. Like, "Yeah, you need a timeout." Coach K did not take kindly to that. Followed Michael DeVoe like almost, that. yeah. He followed him almost all the way back to the Georgia Tech bench, and then in the post game handshake, Coach K and Josh Pastner spent a long time chatting with each other about what happened. And and Josh Pastner said that you know Michael DeVoe should not be talking to other coaches. That that's really not his role. Um, uh, gentlemen, any any thoughts on on this whole thing, Donald? Yeah, and, and I know some people, of course, the, the haters on Twitter were looking at the one side of it and seeing the video of Coach K kind of coming out to half court and yelling, saying, don't talk to me. I don't want him. I don't, he shouldn't be talking to me, saying that to the referee and saying that to Josh Pastner. And they were saying, oh, well, Coach K was in the wrong here. He shouldn't be going after a player. Well, I will say this. A lot of people that were at the game last night were talking about how Josh Pastner was yelling at players of Duke when they were at the free throw line in an effort to get them to miss their free throws in the first half when they were going on that end of the floor. So coaches shouldn't be talking to players. Players shouldn't be talking to coaches. Let those two handle it. We've seen this in the past 
and usually it's resolved with a nice handshake and stuff, but it's clear that DeVoe was heated. It fired up in the moment. And Coach K is, we know Coach K is going to defend himself, and I have no problem with him doing it at that moment. The whole thing was really bizarre, and I, I couldn't, like, it speaks to how weird it was that Jason was still, like, trying to figure it out via everybody's Twitter reactions last <laughs> night and this morning that like, and like it didn't, it didn't get directly addressed in the, in the post game, at least not in a way that was satisfactory. So yeah, super weird. Uh, I hope it doesn't become another uh, dumb coach K meme, but um, glad that, glad that nobody ended up like fighting or getting technicals or anything out of it. Uh, yeah. It didn't seem, it didn't seem that heated. It, it seemed more like coach K saying, look, He's not supposed to do that. Someone control him and tell him that he's not supposed to do that. Um, and, and yeah, you know, Coach K had some words for Michael DeVoe, and he probably he probably should have just directly gone up to Josh Pastner to talk about it. But it's the heat of the moment. It's, it's a game. It, you know, it's during the game. I, and I don't think it's any, it's any big thing. Um, Duke's all done with Georgia Tech now. They don't come to Atlanta to play Georgia Tech. By the way, the Miami game is the only time we will play Miami this year. So, if if Jim Laranega has a as a parting gift, so to speak, for Coach K in his final season, you know certainly two guys who've known each other for a long time, two of the elder statesmen of the ACC, um, then then uh, you know this would be the moment that it happens. I think the greatest parting gift that all these coaches can give Coach K is to leave with a loss. Just just take the L and go home. <laughs> Coach K is not worried about rocking chairs or. or surprises from former guests like i mean like you said crimmins would have been really cool though um to, to have him there if he, if he would have made it uh, but coach is not looking for all that stuff he's just looking for w's and and another banner another few banners to be hanging in cameron at the end uh, i'll take that that would be the finest parting gift that we could give to the man uh so that's going to wrap it up for us here on episode 376 of the duke basketball report podcast by the way hit us up let us know what you're thinking uh, write to us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. You can also uh, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe. Boy, you don't want to miss one of these. These podcasts are fabulous. You would not want to miss a single second of this stuff. So make sure you like and subscribe and all that other jazz. We will be back with you. Uh, you know, hopefully nothing major happens between now and Saturday. We'll be back with you this weekend after the Blue Devils have played Miami to recap that game. Until then, I am Jason. He is Sam. He is Donald, and this is the Duke Band to play us out and take us home. <laughs>